Greetings all you cats, dogs, and other friends in the animal kingdom. This is Pat Brennan Arnipole welcoming you to another episode of Beyond Believers, the definitive Elvis Costello fan podcast. Today we're going to be discussing side A of Get Happy, Elvis Costello and the Attraction's first genre-hopping album, this time deep into the soul-drenched territory of Stax and Motown. And I can think of no better person to discuss this with than my own good friend, family member, and Motor City Madam herself, Lizzie Siegel. Lizzie and I have been friends for years, brought together by a mutual love of music and movies. So get ready for an episode packed with references and illusions. This is by far our most ADD-friendly episode, albeit a much gentler one than our previous Armed Forces Mania. In fact, this episode is so ADD that we've decided to split it into two parts, and we may split the whole album into four. We'll see. Topics discussed include the utter professional and personal idiocy perpetrated by Costello that preceded Get Happy, what is the most insane track on the album, and what Hot Chocolate and Yvonne Elliman have to do with a blue-eyed soul album from a supposed punk, and so much more. So give us a listen, and if you feel it, enjoy it. We're here for Beyond Believers, the Elvis Costello fan podcast. My name is Pat, and I have a very special guest with me today. She is firstly a comrade in arms. We've been through some shit. A dear friend, a true flag-waving fan of what she loves, and finally, my cousin-in-law-in-law. It's an honor and a privilege to have on someone with whom I am always down to get happy with. It's Lizzie Siegel! Welcome to Beyond Believers. Thank you so much for having me. And today we are discussing Get Happy, the fourth album in Elvis Costello's career, recorded in October of 79, so really quick turnaround. Came out just in time for Valentine's Day, 1980. So, Lizzie, I invited you on today because, first of all, because we're friends, but secondly, because this is the beginning, I feel like, of him starting the career where each album is going to be different. Each one is going to be, is taking in a whole slew of influences and digesting them and having them come out as something totally different. And for this album, it's stacks and it's motown and as you pointed out to me earlier you were rocking a stack shirt today so with the is that got the snap logo on it it does it does i love it and of course motown is your hometown yes exactly i am coming at you from detroit today so i as i said got you on because you are a big fan of soul music and R&B, particularly Motown. And it's a big part of how we bonded as friends. And so therefore for his Stax Motown album, I could think of nobody better to have on. Why don't you go ahead and tell us kind of what is your relationship with Elvis Costello and his music, if at all, before Um, uh, this podcast? (laughs) Sure. So I had very little relationship to Elvis Costello. You know, I always watched a lot of television and got really into reading music magazines when I was in middle school. So he was just like, oh, he seems like a cool guy and he looked cool with his cool glasses. Mm -hmm. I think the first song that I ever like knew that he did was his version of um, What's So Funny About Peace, Love and Understanding. I don't know like where I heard it. I don't remember the first time. Yeah, it's a a good one. Um, But I really didn't, ever go out of my way to really listen to him um, until I believe it was when I was 18 or 19 and I was working at Borders RIP. From my time spent in the music section there, I think I somehow realized that my aim is true was like maybe a classic that I should familiarize myself with. Or maybe I was just like, I should finally check out some Elvis Costello. And I just picked that one. So I bought this CD. Awesome. You got the Rhino. Yeah, when we were in high school was when Rhino put out all the double disc reissues. It's a beautiful, I mean, that cover too is just so like, it's definitely attention catching. Yes, it is. I was like, this looks great. He's looking like Buddy Holly uh, on the front. But anyway, so I'm I'm not going to lie. I listened to it a bit for sure, but it's not an album that I really came back to. Um, Allison stuck with me 
Welcome to the working week definitely stuck with me. It still plays in my head frequently on Monday mornings. But like besides that, I've like not really listened to much Elvis Costello. He did have a starring role in um, one of my favorite dreams I ever had, which I'll share at the end of the podcast. Um, Stick around, folks. Yeah, yes. Exactly. Got to leave something there for them to stick around for. But anyway, yeah, when you asked me to do Get Happy, I was like, okay, literally never even heard of the album because that's how little I knew about Elvis Costello, really. But I've been doing a whole bunch of listening and reading and stuff the last few weeks. So I hope I've studied up enough. I am kind of trying to strike a balance with guests where it's like I have some like uh, my friend Megan, who's like a super fan. And then I have some people who are coming on who will the album they're listening to will be the first time they've ever listened to Elvis Costello, period. I just know them (laughs) as music fans, much like yourself, where I just want your like raw reaction to it. Because if I believe he's the best singer songwriter of the last 45 years, which I do, I, I, I definitely hope people appreciate hearing him for the first time and, and getting something out of it. So get happy. As I said, is the fourth album and it's coming right after kind of a whirlwind three years. I mean, my aim is true comes out in July of 77. This year's model comes out in early 78 armed forces comes out early to mid 79 and then this album's out in 1980. So four He's albums. Cranking them out. Four albums in basically like three and a half years, yeah. essentially. And like very quickly dispels the whole like second album syndrome. The second album is even better than the first one. Third album is arguably as good as the second one. And then you've got Get Happy. So as far as like context goes for this one, He had been on the road for about just as much time as he had been recording and releasing albums. He started touring almost immediately after that. And it bears mentioning the incident in Columbus, Ohio, which I have touched on in all of these episodes and probably will touch on damn near every episode since because it is worth mentioning, but it's particularly relevant in this case. One night, Costello and his tour mates, uh, spend the night at the Holiday Inn in Columbus, Ohio. Staying in that same hotel is Stephen Stills of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and his touring party. And Costello, in an effort to pick a fight, starts talking shit about them. They start talking about music. They fire insults back and forth. And in a disgusting and awful attempt at humor as well as starting a fight which he succeeded in uh he dropped the n-bomb twice in relation to ray charles and james brown two artists who he is a huge fan of and um he got slapped across the face by bonnie bramlett who was the backup singer for stephen stills at the time also part of delaney and bonnie and awesome and she was an iCat for like a minute. She was an iCat for a second. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And so huge, like huge proponent of R&B, huge, like fantastic white backup singer who could hold her own in a group as an iCat and as kind of R&B singer in general. Just fantastic. Highly recommend. Delaney and Bonnie are one of those groups that's a little bit lost to time. And I highly, highly recommend checking them out. They're insanely influential on like, basically everything from like mid to late sixties through the seventies. It's like until disco, like everybody you listen to them, you're like, I hear a little Delaney and Bonnie here. A lot of their, yeah, a lot of their session musicians, like people who played on their album got poached by other bands in the future. Uh-huh. Like I believe like Bobby keys, you know, who played oh. sax with the stones, like on Brown sugar and, yeah. and such. He was playing with Delaney and Bonnie and then got poached by the Stones. Uh, I think maybe also the trumpet player who toured with the Stones, Jim, his name escaped me, but he got started with Delaney and Bonnie as well as like playing as their backup band and stuff. So they were not only awesome, but they had like a killer band as well. So this is who slaps Costello across the face. And then uh, the next day, most news outlets hear about it. 
Costello, at least by the standards of 1979, is is sort of effectively canceled. He finishes out his tour. He gives a press conference in in oh gosh, where is it? In New York City at CBS, his record label at the time, in which he apologizes for it, but is also like still still a 24 year old asshole. Still doesn't I. Yeah, it left to a lot to be that, desired. Lizzie. Yeah, it was a pretty, so I didn't know about the Columbus incident somehow. I mean, like I said, I really didn't follow Elvis Costello. Um, I really so, didn't mean to drop that bomb on you. I really was just, I didn't, you're probably just like, God damn it. Now, like, why did he give me this one? Yeah. I just so wanted like, to talk about Motown. Yeah, like, like halfway into me preparing for this um, episode was when I finally read about the Columbus incident. It was really hard to not just like hate him for a little bit there. Um, the language was so horrible. And the things he said, it was just, just very, very, very bad. Um, it felt very unforgivable and inexcusable. Um, and then he had this press conference, which I read also the coverage of, and it was uh, not great. He didn't do a great job at taking any accountability uh, for what he said. Uh, very disappointing. I mean, I don't know. His argument was... being that he was blackout drunk at the time and didn't even remember what he said, but that is yeah. an excuse. He wouldn't, yeah, he wouldn't, like people were saying like, oh, like, did you say this? And he just was not, you know, he didn't, I don't know if it's just like a part of the culture of 1979 that I don't understand, but I mean, people were definitely upset that he insulted, that he chose to insult black artists specifically, although it sounds like he also insulted white artists before that. But for me, like the use of the N-word was so, so huge. And I feel like nobody was really talking. <laughs> there were like, no one really cared that he, he, I don't know. I think that word maybe just has a lot more weight to it now than maybe. I would have thought that by 1979, it would have been considered terrible. Uh, but I think maybe it just wasn't such a, they weren't so far gone from the time of it being used commonly. I don't know. That's an interesting point. I mean, the simple fact of the matter is, is that it was wrong in 1979 and it's wrong in 2022 as well. And it's wrong in 2003 when uh, he wrote the liner notes about, about this happening. And, you know, if you're going to make an argument or not even an argument, but like a little bit of context, which again, context is not an excuse. It's merely an under just, recognizing the time that it took place there is a lot more freedom with the language in that culture for the sake of freedom which i feel like is this kind of cast off of the of the counterculture of the 60s of the 70s of everything that is you know everything that is kind of permissible in terms of discussion of language regarding sexuality, profanity, obscenity, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, you're also, I believe it's 1978 or 79. You've got Patti Smith, which is something nobody talks about. Patti Smith recorded a song called Rock and Roll N-Word. Oh, yes. Um, and says it over and over and over again. And you can, you can, tr you can try to justify and understand why Patti Smith thought it was cool to do that and thought it was worthwhile to do it, but it is inexcusable. Right. And, and I mean, didn't Elvis use the phrase white N word on a pre, on yes. one of the previous, so, I forget which song now, but yeah, we actually, um, I feel really stupid because we actually forgot to talk about that on, on our armed forces episode when we covered <laughs> Oliver's army. That's it. Yeah. There is, um, there's a line. There was a checkpoint, Charlie. He didn't crack a smile, but it's no laughing party when you've been on the murder mile. All it takes one itchy trigger, one more widow, one less. And that lyric was inspired directly from his traveling to Belfast. Right. To play. 
because amongst British army soldiers, that's what they, that's what they called Irish people. Um, That's what they called Catholics and not remotely the same, not remotely the same kind of context or anything like that. And God knows, you know, anytime race in America comes up, there's always some Irish American that likes to talk about how terrible the Irish were treated. And it's just like, yeah. And it's just sort of like, Jesus Christ, here we go again. This miserablest narrative of our, uh, 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 my, my so-called culture, um, which is just ridiculous and absolute nonsense. But yeah, so he did use that in the context of Oliver's army. Um, and there's also some lines in the song Sunday's Best, uh, also on that album, where he is literally, I mean, but I, I would say those songs, if you listen to them, honestly, I don't think you would come away thinking these are songs from a written by a bigot. There are, right. are songs from, I mean, that album, Armed Forces, the original title was Emotional Fascism. You know, it's it is a song that is an album that repeatedly takes the perspective of truly awful people and is very much about the exploitation of people and how there's a pretty thin line between the exploiter and the exploited and all all this kind of stuff. And again, you will uh, see our episode on Armed Forces for further exploration of all of the themes that come up in that album. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, And there is a kind of freedom there, there is this thing in in the language where it's like everything is permissible, um, with little respect given to, uh, taste or human dignity or anything like that. I mean, I I just heard a Lou Reed live album from recently from this time, in which he does Walk on the Wild Side, and oh, yeah. instead of saying the color girls, he says the N word <gasps> girls, and you're I know Lou, what the fuck, Lou. and again, again. None of this is like, well, see, those other guys are doing it. It's not, I don't mean that in any way, shape, or form. It's simply that I think there is the freedom. There is this, like, this, you know, I mean, gosh, we've seen it with comedians now being like, and, and there is, it's like every 10 to 15 years, there's this thing, you know, whether it's 1920 or 2020, where somebody's like, if you can't say this anymore, then, you know, how am I supposed to tell jokes or how am I supposed to sing songs or anything? It's all bullshit. Um, And I also think, um, and again, not letting anybody off the hook here, but I think cocaine needs to be acknowledged. (laughs) I think booze needs to be acknowledged, both of which were like pretty full tilt at this time as well. Um, Yeah. Those will do things. I like saying that things like that and like that Elvis was so young at the time and all this stuff. It's, it's explanation. It's not an excuse, but it is explanation. Thank you, Lizzie. I'm glad yes. you're here. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I would have stammered on for like another 20 minutes. So this incident occurred. This really kind of derailed at least his kind of like rising pop stardom, so to speak. I would say from here on in, he becomes like much more of a niche artist. Um is very much out of the mainstream. Like Armed Forces is really the last time he cracks like the top 20 aside from an occasional hit song here and there. I didn't realize how huge and how huge he was and like how fast he was rising up until that incident. Like in America, like it was the record sales were great uh, even here. And I think that you know, if I had been alive in the mid to late seventies, or if I had been British, I would have automatically been way more familiar with Elvis Costello than I am now, because as a consequence of that, I think that's why I was able to just like not know him super well in my life. I I would say the exact same thing. I mean, I happened to come across like some random, some random time I heard pump it up and I really liked it. And that just kind of he was always kind of on the radar. And then I was like, I should give this guy a try. And was like, holy shit, I'm, I'm all about him. But yeah, I mean, it really does. He really kind of goes to, as I said, he becomes a niche artist after this. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting. He talks about in the memoir, making his apologies and everything about that. And it's, he says something where to the effect of like, you know, as much as I regret it and as horrible as this 
as everything was, the fact that I got yanked off like the hit parade and everything like that and like the constant touring and everything like that might have saved my life. Right. Is like and I almost kind of view it in terms of the context of career of his career as almost to like borrow language from recovery, almost like a bottom, mm-hmm. like a hitting a bottom. And the fact that he's able to come back from that, as he says, like, so what if I, you know, was no longer, you know, on some, you know, kind of absurd fame, you know, wheel or however he refers to it in his memoir. He's like, after that, life actually got a lot more interesting. Um, and he was kind of able to be like, I don't have to appeal on such a large scale. Although you could, you could imagine, you could say that when he was at the top of his popularity, he did everything he could to destroy it. Um, even yeah. before, even before Columbus. Yeah. He was completely like self-destructing uh, the whole tour leading up to that. It seemed like, like talking shit about the radio stations that were putting on the concerts he was oh, yeah. playing. Yep. <laughs> Yep. There's a lot. Yeah. And then it would be like, oh, he got the wrong radio station wrong and things like that. Again, it's like, you know, he and and in his memoir too, talking about it, he pulls no punches about just how like stupid he was and how destructive and how idiotic and how just like not a great person he was. And I think this whole kind of experience really kind of humbled him and he really kind of became a much more grounded kind of person and or I should say I don't I don't know the man so I couldn't say grounded person but like grounded <laughs> as an artist started doing press interviews after that became much more of somebody who advocated for the music that he loved you know he used to say like I'm not influenced by anybody except myself and then started to be like, no, like these are musicians I dearly love. He started collaborating with lots of other artists after this, started producing albums after this and stuff. So I don't mean to put like a bow on this story, but suffice it to say, it's certainly did a hell of a lot more to uh, to improve his relations with humanity in general following this incident. And I'm not viewing that necessarily as he's a hero or he's good or bad. <sighs> But, you know, deserves a mention. All right. So after this, he comes off tour. He takes about four months off. He is looking back at all of the songs. He's been writing like so many bands. He's writing songs on the road. He's writing songs on tour. And he hates the way they sound. He says they sound really brittle. And they, he says they are given that really horrible label, New Wave. Which again, he's like, I never heard anybody in my band say new wave. I didn't hear anybody. This was a thing, you know, made up by journalists and everything like that. And so he's like, I really want to get back to writing songs again. So he goes out and he, he listens to all the music he bought while he was on tour, which is lots of obscure singles. And of course, Motown Sharp Busters, volumes one, two, and three. And yeah, exactly. And starts going through all of them and kind of picking them apart and using them as inspiration. And again, like it's freely like he's, he really starts to talk in interviews and stuff too, about like, okay, this song is inspired by these guys. This song comes from this and everything. So he also leaves London at the same time, which is, seems to be really good for him. And they go to Whistle Lord Studios in Hilversum, Holland. The idea was that we would be thoroughly concentrated on recording without the distractions of family and friends in London or the temptations and charms of nearby Amsterdam. Nevertheless, a tray of cold Heineken, vodka, and OJ was delivered to the control room each afternoon, and the illusion of having this civilized cocktail hour disguised the fact that the whole band was pretty lit up the entire time we were away from home. (laughs) Thankfully, the only nearby attraction was a rather lifeless lesbian discotheque the patrons of which were rather unimpressed by our explanation that we like girls too. Ah, uh, such youthful wit in his words. So love that for them. <laughs> so he's, he's, it's so interesting to think of this as a soul album being recorded in Holland miles right. away from <laughs> any kind of like influences or anything like that. And this is what comes out. Yeah, I, I will say when you invited me and you explained that, you know, that it was like his soul album, you know, I was like, oh, it's hard to imagine him doing like a soul album, but okay. And I think for some reason I expected it to be like a more like direct, like obvious uh, influence. Um, 
and then you know I listened and I was like oh this is much more subtle it's very much like soul through the lens of Elvis Costello with like that punk slash new wave even though he hates the term sensibility you know it's filtered through that absolutely and very much like it, it is also it it bears mentioning filtered through the attractions yeah who have become in this like you know kind of incredibly like crack band at this time and pete thomas on drums bruce thomas on bass steve naive on keyboards piano and whatever and are just by the way is that how you pronounce his name because in my head it's been steve neve the whole time and i really so like it's steve his name was steve nason and he was christened steve naive and and spelled you know colorfully that way because early on in his career, they were talking about how he should steer clear of a particular woman who was hanging around. And he just, he replied with, what's a groupie? <laughs> so he was immediately christened Steve Naive after that and has been uh, ever since. He actually then went on to date and marry a groupie who was, she was the, her name was Faye, forget her last name. But she was the roommate of, um, oh gosh, you know the band X? Yeah. I think it's, is it Xtina, the the Codely singer of that band with John Doe? Thanks. Um, so. Yeah, it was her roommate who like became like a mainstay of like the LA music scene and hooked up with him. And I think they might still be married. Um, oh, so yeah. he actually married a, a quote unquote groupie as it were. Um <laughs> So yeah, so he that's that's how he got his uh his nickname Steve Naive. But um, you know, both of the other two guys, the two Thomases, as it were, were like longtime touring musicians before they got involved with him. And Steve Naive was like 18 years old, but he had been to the Royal College of Music. Oh wow. So he's just this insanely talented musician. So you take these these guys who are like such like such hot shit like players, and then you're like you know, play like the Motown band. And this is what, this is what comes out. He always, Costello always jokes about how he kept trying to ask Pete Thomas to play slower and he just wouldn't, <laughs> just wouldn't do it. It's like, like pump it up. He's like, I want it to sound like the drums on going to a go-go. And he's like, okay. It's just like, it's like, okay, okay. We'll try it on the next one. All right. So track one here. Straight up Motown homage right away. Oh, yeah. Love, love pretender. We've got the baseline, the legendary baseline of You Can't Hurry Love. So let's have a fine welcome for Love played by James, the great James Jamerson. Do, 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 do. Another actually big hit song of the same time that has this, I just realized, is um, Town Called Malice by The Jam. Yeah. Has the same thing. And they're, they're coming out at roughly the same time. It's a great, great rhythm, you know. Why not? Why not steal it? <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it is the great, it, it, I mean, it really is. It's kind of like the Bo Diddley beat. Like it is a, classic and will it, that baseline will never die people will always use that iggy pop uses it at the same time like a year earlier for lust for life yes and then yeah. um and then there's that band jet who recorded that shit song uh with it as well are you gonna be my girl right? are you gonna be my girl garbage <laughs> utter garbage i believe i don't really love pitchfork and its nature of 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 its style of reviewing 
but I do appreciate that they once referred to Jet's album as musical necrophilia. <laughs> and in the case of that song, it really, it does feel like it. Even though, of course, it's like, but I love Love for Tender and Lust for Life. I just hate that one. Yeah. Yeah, something about it. Um, yeah, I was going to give a shout out to James Jamerson later, but like, yeah, why not now? He was like one of the fucking greatest bass players ever. Super influential, amazing walking bass lines. It's really unfortunate that he drank himself to death, but man, absolutely, man, he was good. And the, the band does a great job of playing really great, you know, uh, Bruce Thomas, I guess, does a really great job of just great bass lines throughout this album absolutely absolutely this is really it's funny because him and pete thomas hate the way their their instruments sound on this album but i feel like definitely like this is maybe my favorite bass sound of bruce thomas on this album he's so forward like in the mix and everything yeah he really is i was gonna say like he was uh i was playing this album like on my stereo while i was getting ready this morning and it was just like it's like (laughs) like he is blowing out like on 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 every track on this album and i also love you know they start with the walk with the bass line and then you've got the do 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 you know and what i love about this album and i love about kind of almost every great album is it sound for me is it sounds like familiar and foreign at the same time yes and it really is this thing where it has like these soul grooves to it, but again, it's filtered through the attractions. And then you've got Costello is at like what I call peak pun mode. I was going to say that at this time. He, yeah. He will never be more like punny on, on any other album than he is now. And the other thing I realized is listening to it again, is just how funny it is. Yeah. It's a really, really kind of darkly hilarious album i mean like the you with your lyrics here it's all like you won't take my love for tender you can put your money where your mouth is put your money where your mouth is but you're so unsure i could be a miser or a big spender but you might get much farther in the bargain for it's just oh, yeah. it's my so notes good. on like every song are like oh clever lyrics punny all this wordplay yeah he does he does a lot of that throughout it's it's like kind of crazy how much he does it but um but it's real it's it's real fun it's very clever it will yes there is there's a review of a later costello album where they're like i appreciate the lyrics but it kind of sounds like the smart ass in the back of the classroom and i mean there is definitely a little bit of this and i mean he even says he's like i've (laughs) i've never done it before since but this to me is also just like i so appreciate like after artists always tend to do albums like this after something like armed forces which is so like heavy synthesizers like really textured production and stuff and this is just like let's dash off these 20 songs and do it right now and like just not not labor over the process kind of like you know the beatles with the white album and get back after sergeant pepper bands yeah. always go through through this kind of period and so this is just kind of like he's just fucking going for broke here you know the wages of sin are an uh, are an expensive infection my favorite is you can total up the balance sheet and never know if I'm a counterfeit. Um, <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> you're even like, that's kind of a stretch. Like you're going to pronounce it counterfeit. I know. It's like I don't know if they pronounce gymnastics. <laughs> Just like... Basically, basically it's like, he's doing crazy flips on like the balance bar. And he's just <laughs> like, look, like I got, I, I got, I got so much more. And this song, I mean, like, I think it's like 90 seconds long, maybe the shortest track since welcome to the working week and just like flies out of sight and you're yeah. off. Almost uh-huh. all these songs are so short, which I mean, I guess they have to be if you're fitting 20 songs on an album. And that's just the final cut. Like they recorded yeah. way more, you know? Oh my gosh. They recorded Wild. something like at least 30 or so songs. Yeah. 
So track two, Opportunity. Opportunity. This is like a top 50, like all time song for me. I absolutely love this track. It's a good one. Um, I like how we go from the Motown vibe of Love for Tender into uh, the use of the organ in this song is way more like stacks esque to me. Kind of like, yeah, it's got sort of Booker T vibes. But yeah, this song, the song's great. I did make a note that. I'd like to be his funeral director is like my very favorite lyric, maybe on the entire album. Like chairman of the board, chairman of the boredom is a compliment collector. I'd like to be his funeral director. I, oh God, it's so fucking great. It's so great. It really, I mean, this, this is like, Born in the middle of a second big baby boom. Born in the middle of a second big baby boom. Those nice advice just might have spoken up too soon. Now I'm looking for a little girl. I wonder where she's gone. Big money for families. I think just after the war. Now I'm looking for a girl, little girl. I wonder where she's gone. Big money for families having more than one. This is really interesting to me because it's kind of the second track on Armed Forces is called Senior Service. And it's a song about how like you, can you see Cohen's tail in the background? Um, You can see. I just stifle my left. It's it's a song about how like, you know, you should totally knock over uh, and replace, if not kill your competition to get ahead in business. We, we made a lot of allusions to 45 and his administration in discussion of senior service. And this is almost like somewhat similar, but it's about, I don't know if it's about like wanting to have more children for like to increase the population or something like that. This is your big opportunity. They shop around, follow you without a sound, whatever you do now, don't turn around. My other, my other favorite line on this is I'm in a foxhole. I'm down in a trench. I'd be a hero, but I can't stand the stench. <laughs> I love it. I love That's it. So good. And but, it's yeah. just the, everybody's playing on this is so good. I just abs- I mean, the bass and keyboards oh are like God. in conversation with each other. The bass line or not, maybe not throughout, but there's this one part where the bass totally reminds me of you sexy thing by hot chocolate where it goes like and then i just want to yeah exactly i'll pull it up right now I believe in miracles. It really is. It's so, you're absolutely right. I never heard that before. Shout out to Hot Chocolate. British band, by the way. Um, Huge. um, uh, Oh my God. Why am I doing this right now? Mm. (laughs) It's okay. Uh, Oh, uh, everyone's a winner. It's like one of my very favorite songs. Oh my God. It's great. Hot Chocolate is a fantastic band. But yeah, I was was listening to this song and all of a sudden You Sexy Thing got stuck in my head. And I was like, why is that song stuck in my head? And then I realized it was because of the bass in it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, to me, it's also just, especially by this point in his career, this is like the chillest he's ever sounded on record ever. Like, it's so relaxed, even though, like, the tempo is like this. It's still, like, it's very subdued. He says they were trying to sound like Al Green's band. Yeah. Oh, and I for sure, for sure hear that. You can hear, like, uh, Let's Stay Together, like, kind of a a vibe to it. Chill soul vibes. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's... 
dare I say it's a little, it's a little bit sexy. I mean, it's not oh, hot yeah. chocolate sexy, but it's got, it's got <laughs> some, it's got some cool vibes to it. But again, like, you know, like we want to sound like Al Green's band, but Pete Thomas is still like, we're going to play it fast. <laughs> yeah. There's also, there's a little bit of like, because I think the other big influence on this album too is Bowie's Berlin albums, mm-hmm. like Low and Heroes. And I can hear like a little bit of that starting to creep in in this song, but I feel like there are a few songs later on where you really hear it, where like yeah. Bowie is doing his weird craftworky German kind of thing, but then has like a funk band playing with him. For sure. I feel like a lot like the songs will like, they've got like a dark kind of vibe, but also very funky. Like station to station starts like super like dark vibes and then gets real funky. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like that fits like Costello's lyrics so perfectly um, to go with that, especially like if you hear a song on Armed Forces, like chemistry class or something, you you get that vibe, but you get it a lot here on this album in particular um, where I, I feel like, yeah, it's like, it's like Bowie. It's like, Bowie and Berlin and like Stacks and Motown. They're like the the holy trinity plus, of influences. Plus the the ska thing on a few tracks too. We got it. We'll, we'll address that later. Oh, most definitely. I would agree. It exactly. Yeah. And and that's a that is a big thing for Costello and a big thing in UK music at this oh, time, right? Yeah, now. huge. I mean, he produced we'll the specials there. debut exactly. album. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll get there. All right. We gotta we gotta keep moving. Um, so track three, the imposter. <laughs> excited to talk about the imposter fire away (laughs) this song is like so i don't know it's actually starting to grow on me i think i'm actually starting to like it but at first i was like this is a song that i don't like but i love you know there are things that like you don't like like you love but you don't like because absolutely people like that yeah exactly like you know sometimes family i don't know (laughs) no um but uh this because this song brings me such joy when I listen to it because it just makes me laugh like the chaotic zany organ on this song is so hilarious to me like organ can have a lot of different sounds right like it can be used in so many different genres and it's given different things but this is straight up chaos sounds like a ballpark organist went on like a coke bin <laughs> just like went nuts at a baseball game i don't Absolutely. know <laughs> just like circusy vibes um just wild but i've listened to it so many times now that i've started to like it a little bit and I I think I like the bones of it. Like if the organ were like a little less zany, I'd take it more seriously. Um, and I think there's good stuff there. But I'll say something about that later too in the podcast. I don't think it's meant to be taken seriously at all. And I think this yeah. is again, like it, it's a total different vibe from opportunity, but it's just as funny and just as clever. It's also like, again, like, I I don't know if I told you about this. When we did My Aim is True, we had like, a, we did like a horny scale. Like, how horny is this song? Yes. And then, because there are some horny ass songs on My Aim is True. <laughs> I mean, God, the album's called My Aim is True. Mm-hmm. You know, there's... And you know, there's the never been the spot, always been too smart. And you know all our boys are really girls at heart. And it's it's like there's that's a great line. Exactly. There's it's just so it's so like seedy. Again, like it's as seedy as a baseball organist on a coke binge. Like <laughs> yeah. you are you're corrupting this kind of 
you know, this, uh, like something like this really wholesome sound, you know, and of course there's the incredible bridge. When I said that I was lying, I might've been lying. Never let me hear you say you're not trying. And I think he says like not trying enough or something like that. It's funny when he says you're not trying my theory here. And I think it's a big part of why Elvis Costello is not quite as popular as some other singer songwriters of his time. This is my pet theory. Mm -hmm. Elvis Costello is the Anne Hathaway of singer songwriters. He's a try hard and nobody (laughs) likes a try hard. And this whole album is just try hard. And this is like, look what I'm just firing off. You know, like, it's so. Yeah, I definitely see that. Yeah. And I just, oh, it's so good. There's also, um, I don't know if you do this. I think it might be just me and my like ADD and being on the spectrum. Oh, but no, it, I, I it, identify the same it, way. <laughs> if, certain, if certain songs like get in my head enough, like this one does, I start to see parallels in my life with people in these songs. Like there are certain songs, whether it's like Dylan songs, who songs, St. Vincent songs, like anybody where it's like this really, this song to me is about like, there's a, you know, there's a song about an ex. There's a song, there's a song about a certain, a, a certain person I am no longer friends with. And there's a, the third verse. It's just like, I mean, you know, double jointed is, uh, you know, we can take that where where you want to. But it's just like he's got double vision when you want him double jointed, whether he's like the guy's a lush or he's a nerd with glasses. Like, it's just it works. It works so well. So that those are one of those lines when I hear it and I just yes. I think of someone particular immediately. <laughs> great one that reminds me of a line um in no action on this year's model where he goes he's got everything you need it's a shame that he didn't bring them (laughs) so again like this this song is just oh it's just fantastic yeah all right it's it's wild yeah definitely i would say like top five for me on this album and and definitely 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 cracks i'm currently putting together the top 100 songs Okay. For him. And this is definitely on it for sure. All right. Possibly top 50. All right. We're going to another chill vibe again here with Secondary Modern. Secondary Modern. There won't be a problem till the girls go home. I love this song. Tell me more. It's one of my favorites on the album. And it's funny because... I like it is so soothing and chill, but also I wonder if part of that, like that effect is just amplified by the fact that it follows the imposter. It's, it's the immediate relief following that. It is essential after the imposter. Yeah. It's like, you really need to just bring it back down and this is a great way to do it. But I think the song is just so like, so sweet and soft and lovely and yeah. It's, I like it a lot. His vocal has like the flavor of like the feel of like a late night telephone call. Oh, totally. Yeah. If you've ever had anybody read poetry to you over the phone or something (laughs) like that, which I mean, come on, we we grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s. You can bet your ass. (laughs) Also, like my ex is a poet. That's true. That's true. (laughs) There there was a lot. Yeah, a decent amount of that in my life. Shout out to him. Shout shout out. (laughs) (laughs) Moving swiftly on. But yeah, I mean, there is that kind of like, there must be the place. (laughs) You know, and there is this kind of thing where I know like secondary modern refers to, I believe in the English school system. School system, yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like, 
I think it's like a trade school, I think. And it's just kind of the idea. It, it is that, I mean, it's so in such British, you know, way it's like secondary modern is, you know, it's, it's like a secondary, you know, school. It's kind of like a, you know, and I'm looking this up right now. Secondary schools. Yeah. yeah they go straight into trade jobs. So it's trade school, essentially like the same way in America, to be honest. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, there, <laughs> there, what it was a big thing until again, around the time this album comes out where, you know, there were a lot of, there were a lot more trade schools in, in the U S particularly in urban centers to trade people, train people to basically be like, like uh, to take the civil service exam. So to yeah. be like, municipal workers, um, you know, firemen, you know, like things like that, um, of that nature. And that was like a big thing that we kind of took over from like the British school system. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I would have practicality now, but no, no, we're not here to talk. We're not here to talk about, about capitalism. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, I mean, this is that thing where it's like, you know, like this, was it the second verse? Uh, this is the hand that, that you never should. You never gave me the chance that I took. Secondary mind, there won't be a problem till the girls go home. You know, it's it's kind of this to me. It's sort of like it's it has a kind of like resignation to it. It's kind of about like I mean, it, it sounds like it's about an affair not working out. You know, but maybe there's a chance. Um, I don't know. It has. So it's kind of. So you're saying there's a chance. I rub my hands together. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. I there's just a, be making. This is such a goofy album. It is per like all all is permissible here as far as um as far as dumb jokes go. Okay. But yeah, I mean, is that like I? I think I dig the vibe like of the song and the music of the song is much or, or way more than I do the lyrics. Cause I think the lyrics are kind of, I mean, they're oh, interesting, yeah. but they're, I kind of just love his singing on this. I feel like this is the album where he starts to be really begin to get the semblance of his voice. Yeah. I, yeah. I, the, like the whole reason I love the song is basically just, just the vocals. Like he could just sing the words secondary modern over and over again. That's like, that's it. That's all I need. I would love, you know, he did the thing this past year with a Spanish model. I don't know if you saw this. Mm-mm. He re-released this year's model, but had a bunch of Spanish language artists do oh. re-record the vocals. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So you it's on it's on Spotify and everything. You can look it up. Yeah, so a lot, some of them do direct translations and some of them do, I would say like Completely poetic different. translations okay. of, of a sort, which is really cool. I mean, honestly, different language is a different point of view. So it makes sense yeah. that there are liberties kind of taken with it, Yes, but especially something like pump it up. But this is another one where it's like, I'd love to hear this, like a sultry, like Spanish or like Portuguese, like kind of Ooh. vibe to it or even just different lyrics like I just I, I would love it the, the music and his vocal delivery are so great on this song you've, you've really turned me around on this secondary modern is now it, it might crack the top five for this Ooh. album oh yay I mean was, you know you know do what you want with your heart but yeah all right <laughs> all right next track oh my god King Horse, King Horse. King Horse, oh my God, is exactly right. <laughs> Cheap cut satin and bad perfume. Showtime is almost here. What? 
this song musically like set off a whole crazy thing in my brain so when I first like the very first time I heard it of course like that that opening riff like borrows from reach out I'll be there by the four tops um, he's which, a huge four tops man yeah and, he that, and you hear that on this album Oh yeah, and he like he he said I think even in the liner notes or in interviews or whatever that like yeah like they they borrowed from that song for this song but so so that opening but then I was like this reminds me of something else a little bit too and then I realized that it was I had to like go into the you know, dusty vaults in my brain. And um, I don't know how familiar you are with the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, but the song, If I Can't Have You, <laughs> sung by Yvonne Elliman, and really she does the best version, although the Bee Gees wrote it and recorded it themselves later, but it opens with this like... this reminds me of that too but then my brain was like oh you know what though that also kind of reminds me of the very beginning of two tickets to paradise by eddie money and then my brain became that meme of charlie day from <laughs> it's always sunny and I just actually created a list in my notes app of all these songs that somehow felt related in my brain, but it got to be like a real stretch and it was insane. And it ended up ending in like a song that I've literally never heard outside of a movie trailer on television in 1998. <laughs> Sorry, that was like you've a- just, <laughs> You've just explained in the most like clear as day terms how Elvis Costello writes songs. Oh, I'm glad he has a crazy brain like mine. It literally is like, I take a piece of this. It's like a, it's like music is like a buffet and each song is a plate he's filling up. And it really is like, you're absolutely right. It's got all of that stuff there. Yeah. And I'm I would not be, he's not above loving Saturday Night Fever. By the way, the song you mean, just so I got it, correct is that's yeah. the if i can't have you i don't want nobody baby yes yeah, absolutely. but by it, the way it opens with this sort of like sweeping sort of like the strings and everything yep yeah. yep yep i know exactly what you're talking about um yeah, but so it, it was like a mashup of that and reach out i'll be there that that opening little that little repeating piano riff reminds me of absolutely and although i, I don't think that was the intention <laughs> But, you know, but yes. I would not be the least bit surprised if that rattled around in his brain, even if he wasn't a disco fan. Like he's not he's not someone who's going to turn down a good melody like if he hears it. And I would say I like the Bee Gees as much, if not more than songwriters, as I do as like actual per like a band or performers. Oh, yeah. They're across great. the board. They've written so many HBO documentary on them. I have not. Oh, so good. You got to watch it. And then I, I realized that I have like a huge crush on like really young Barry Gibb. Like Barry before, Gibb he, is before so... he was like so hirsute. Like, <laughs> oh, <he's> so. <laughs> <laughs> this is not, I'm sorry. <laughs> I really Take go, notes, I go on a lot of tangents. But <laughs> I love it. But this is a tangential album. I mean, God, True. you know, True. there's a. She can turn upon a six. She can turn upon a sixpence in the mouth and trousers set. Hit the till, ring the bell, never spill a sip. Still she knows the kind of tip she is gonna get. A lot of loose exchanges, precious little respect. But if someone else is weekend, that's the best you can expect. I mean, I assume that's about a prostitute. I don't know. Like it's sex work. Sex work. Thank you. Thank you. You know better. You. I do know better. I know damn well better. And uh, if my partner was here, I would get a firm talking to. You know, that's why um, I, I'm playing the Alex role right now, because I know it's what they would want. Shout out to Alex. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I think that's a verse about a sex worker for sure. 
And I think there is a kind of reminds me, you see the, did you see the Greta Gerwig Little Women remake? No, you know, I, I never ended up seeing it. Oh my God, you'll love it. You'll absolutely positively love it. You need, you need to see it immediately. Like that should be the next movie you watch. But there's a line in it where Meryl Streep plays Aunt March and mm-hmm. she has the line where, you know, talks about how hard it is for women to make their own money. She's like, well, you could be an actress on the stage or manage a cat house. <laughs> Practically the same thing. And uh, this makes me think this song is like, it's like, there's not much difference between like, you know, bad stage show and, uh, and, and a cheesy stage show and sex work. Meanwhile, back in some secluded spot, he says, will you please? And she says, stop. If I ever lose this good thing that I got, I never want to hear this song. You dedicated tonight. You see, I knew that song so long I would wonder actually if this song is kind of about one of the sort of often dismissed, but I, I'm kind of curious about the, you know, the various sort of significant others or, or lovers in his life as material. He had a thing shortly after this album or shortly before this album was recorded with B.B. Buell. Buell. Yeah. You're familiar with her? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, anybody in Rundgren's girlfriend, Liv uh, Tyler's mother of mom. Liv Tyler. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And she was a big fan of him. I wonder if this song's a little bit about her. Um, yeah, I know that in some of the reading I did, there was a lot of speculation about songs being written about her. And he was like, oh, no, I wrote no, those songs before. Like, I wrote those songs, like, well before that happened. But I don't know. So who knows? You see, I knew this song so long before we met. So I wonder if that's got something, yeah. if that might have something to do with it. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I... I king horse i think has something to do with like all the king's horses and all the king's men but i don't i don't really know what the heck i think the- i read that king horse uh shoot <laughs> read an explanation of like what the phrase means it's something about like i think maybe just somebody who kind of just like runs other people over if that makes sense uh where did i read that, that would that would make sense like somebody who's um would you, so I had a I had a friend in high school who we would hang out with him. He would hang out with you until he knew about. Thank you, Cohen. Until he <laughs> heard about like some other big party or something happening, and he would be like gone. He would like Irish goodbye, like be gone in a puff of smoke. And I remember being so irritated about it. And another friend of mine would just go, "He's a bigger, better deal guy." You know, I wonder yeah. if that's like what a king horse is or somebody who like just will be incredibly destructive and not not care like who who they run over in the process. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure. Curious. I think yeah. that but I think the song was about like the verse that you were talking about before is about like a server of some sort because there was um, there's also uh, something from something that Elvis Costello wrote something about uh like in like the armed forces maybe like were just like people making stewardesses lives really miserable or something that's I don't know that's what I that's what I have something about like maybe flight attendants and it does make a sense because it does make sense because when I read it I you know I, I think of like a bartender but yeah there's there's something on uh what was girls 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 an album by him that I just don't know. Girls, Girls, Girls is a compilation, I believe, of like different songs of his from, I think, the time he was on CBS Records. And it in- I think it includes things like Girls Talk and... Okay. Which is the, I think, that's like the true great outtake of this album. Um, okay. I mean, it so, was a Dave Edmonds yeah. song, but anyways, that's another... Yeah, let me look it up. What the heck yeah, is so on? there's a because there's something from the girls, girls, girls liner notes that he wrote. Um, I don't I want to I want to read the whole thing. Um, he said like he found a notebook that he had written some lyrics in 
um, about uh, tawdry compromise and desperate fun, mostly the work of a very naive 19 year old. Um, now I'm looking to hang it all on the best insult to the strutting male that I can find. The cult of the stallion with medallion is in full flower. I look at the silly schoolboys making the stewardess's life a, a misery. I look at myself in the mirror or in the toilet mirror, King Horse. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. He he does make a lot of allusions in the memoir to seeing like to like late 70s fashion, which is. <laughs> I'm sneezing Bless out the you. disgust. Thank you. Um, of like guys with like uh shirts like buttoned down to the navel with like oh, yeah. love medallions, like you know, um reminds me of uh you ever see that Miranda July movie The Future? No, I didn't see that one. There's a lot, it's it's not great, but there's there's a line in it where in true Miranda July fashion, this guy like has he's got like chest hair and he's got a He's got like a metal, he's got like a chain or something. He's like, mm. do you know what this means? This means I'm ready to fuck. And it's just <laughs> like so ridiculous. And it's just like, so there's all these allusions to like guys with like love medallions and stuff in the seventies uh, that he keeps seeing and keeps making fun of. So I guess that makes sense where it's like, it is a kind of battle of the sexes kind of song about how like ridiculous women in the service industry have to put up with like the asshole behavior of rock stars and corporate people. And as someone who's worked in the service industry, I can, I can understand that to a degree. So that concludes our coverage of the first half of side a of Elvis Costello and the attractions get happy. Stay tuned for the second episode. This is Pat Brennan Arnipal. And I hope we meet again soon between your ears.